Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. If I don't get these 3,000 units for our local families, then I will, what we've called the nuclear hammer, people want drama, but really it's just, I will do a short-term moratorium until we get those houses. Requisitioning Maui vacation rentals for wildfire relief. Monday, January 8th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, protesters in Hawaii have camped out on the beach to demand more help with housing five months after the Maui wildfires. We roughly have about 6,200 still residing in hotels, and um, it's getting pretty hard. A lot of them are paying mortgages on ash and rubble. We'll put their questions to the governor of Hawaii. Also, there's new evidence that phones and social media are to blame for declining test scores, and not just in this country. Is it true? Are phones really making us dumber? But first, they're still finding pieces of that Alaska Airlines flight that lost a hunk of fuselage in midair above Portland, Oregon on Friday. A four-foot-long panel flew off just after takeoff, sucking out pieces of a seat that thankfully had no one in it, as well as a couple passengers' phones, at least one of which has reportedly been found on the ground in working order, no worse for the wear after a 16,000-foot fall. Government and industry investigators are looking into the incident. And as for us, we called up here and now transportation analyst Seth Kaplan for his thoughts. Here's his conversation with Scott Tong. Many of us, you know, have seen those videos of the gaping hole in row 26 on that Alaska Airlines 737 MAX 9. What more do we know today about the piece that fell off in midair and why? Well, just to review for anybody who doesn't know this part. So this is what can be an exit on this aircraft, the 737 MAX 9. But airlines like Alaska Airlines and United and others don't use it as an exit because they don't have so many seats that you would need an exit there. The number of exits depends on how many seats you have on the plane. So, for example, Mm -hmm. if an airline like Spirit, let's say, were to have this plane, they pack more seats on the plane, they might have an exit there. Mm, Alaska does not. Instead, they plug the hole, essentially, and, and it's that piece that fell out. And and so this is something where, where the folks who would have been sitting there, and thank goodness there was nobody right alongside that window, wouldn't even know that there that that row was any different from any other row that didn't have an exit. But mm. in, indeed, you had that what turned out to be a weakness on this aircraft. And, and it, it sounds remarkable that there there were no serious injuries, casualties. Indeed. So fortunately, the plane was still climbing. The fastened seatbelt sight was on, and everybody seemingly had their seatbelts on. And beyond that, 
there was one seat, uh, they're sucked out of the aircraft. So, so, so oh the, just, just, yeah. So just luck there that the, that there was nobody sitting right there or you would have had a casualty and there have been rarely, but there have been other incidents over the decades where you had part of a fuselage sucked away and, and, and where people did mm. die. So all kinds of fortune here that nobody was seriously hurt. Seth, this was a virtually new plane, Boeing 737 MAX 9, with only 145 flights. That's like a car with hardly any miles, I gather. Yeah. yeah. The government, the Federal Aviation Administration, quickly grounded a lot of the this model of jet. Governments around the world are following suit today. What do we know about what they're looking for? Well, they're waiting for guidance right now, really, from the FAA working with Boeing to find out very specifically the answers to that question you just asked. But an airline like United, for example, has said that it's already kind of stripped things down to where they're able to look at that part. The question here is going to be, well, of course, why did that did that failure happen? But mm. was there something structural about the plane? Was there some kind of weakness or was it something procedural where that plug wasn't installed properly? The latter would, would of course, be better news if it was just a one off or something a one time was done thing, yeah. Yeah, incorrectly mm-hmm. on this plane as opposed to something more systemic with with the airframe. And that, that's what they're going to be looking at here, checking those holes on all the other aircraft. Yeah, and I gather they uh, they retrieve this piece, this door plug piece, uh, just west of Portland. So I'm sure that will be an important piece of uh, information that the investigators look at. Um, I want to ask you, Seth, about the plane's cockpit recording. Uh, it was unfortunately taped over. These machines typically record about two hours before resetting, and they start a new recording. How will that impact this investigation? Well, it won't be helpful. And this is one of the other strange things about this, right? A lot of a lot of sort of one-offs here that when you think about all the incidents over the years, just things that that hadn't turned up. And so in many cases, let's face it, when you have a very serious inf- incident involving an airplane, nobody has to think to stop the recording because something catastrophic has often happened. And mm-hmm. so the recording just stops. And so that's going to be something where sort of to take the second part first here going forward making sure there's a procedure where when you're fortunate enough that something bad has gone wrong, but not so badly at the recording stops on its own where somebody stops it. But in terms of this investigation, it'll be unhelpful, no question. You would want to know what was going on in the cockpit. On the other hand, just at a high level with a little Mm -hmm. bit of information right now, there's nothing to think that necessarily anything had gone wrong in the cockpit. You know, it, it seems like something here where something went wrong with that part of the plane whether it was less fortunately something to do with the structure or or perhaps just uh, that it was installed improperly and sealed mm. improperly, something specific to that aircraft, and that wouldn't have been something to do with the cockpit. So you always want to know what's going on in the cockpit, although I think in this incident, less initial suspicion that it was anything irregular in the cockpit than might be the case in others. Okay. And Seth, briefly, uh, is this having an impact on Boeing, you know, its stock price fell this morning. We've heard about deadly crashes with an earlier uh, uh, version of the plane, 737 MAX 8. Right. The the MAX in general got off to an awful start. 346 people died in two crashes. Yeah, Boeing shares are down, as you might imagine today. And uh, people are going to look for assurance here that this was indeed, as I've said a few times, just a one-off. Airlines are having to adjust also with their scheduling they're fortunate that it's it's a time of year with mm-hmm. relatively low travel after the holidays, uh, less disruption than you might have at another time. All right. Here now, transportation analyst Seth Kaplan. Seth, thank you very much. 
Thank you, Scott. Coming up next, survivors of last year's wildfires in Maui have been living in hotels for months, but they can't stay there forever. After the break, Deepa Fernandez hears from one of the protesters who's been demanding a long-term housing solution for families displaced by last summer's fire. She'll also get a few minutes with the governor of Hawaii to get some answers. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, who, as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center in the country's top 4%, is unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. months since a wildfire devastated the historic beach town of Lahaina on Maui, and many of the survivors still have nowhere to call home as they wait to rebuild. Some have been staying in hotels as part of an emergency housing plan, but those arrangements are coming to an end, leaving families scrambling for other options. Residents have been urging state and local leaders to do more to house fire victims. And protesters continue to camp on a beach near Lahaina to draw attention to the issue. A new plan to house survivors was released on Friday. Before we dig into the details, let's hear from a protester. I spoke with Jordan Ruidas before the plan was released. She's a grassroots organiser who grew up in Lahaina. I started out asking her how displaced people are doing five months after the fire. We roughly have about 6,200 still residing in hotels. And um, it's getting pretty hard. A lot of them are paying mortgages on ash and rubble. A lot of them got three-month deferrals. But after that three months, they had a balloon payment and they had to pay those three months in a lump sum. So that fourth month came in December, unfortunately, along with all the holidays. So they had a big payment in December and they're going to be paying going forward if our government can't step in. And are people receiving help to rebuild their houses? As of right now, we are unfortunately nowhere close to the rebuilding process. We are still in phase one of cleanup. The more toxic stuff as cars and propane tanks and all that jazz. Um, We have a lot of people coming in that want to help, but we're just not at that point yet with the rebuild. So tell me about your beach protest. What's the scene like? Who's there? And and really, how have you been able to pull it off? The Lahaina Strong Fishing for Dignified Housing. We are day 53, I think, where we've been staying on Ka'anapali Beach. Um, the reason we are able to stay overnight is we are practicing our Hawaiian hunting, fishing, gathering cultural rights. And so we are fishing nonstop until we get our dignified housing for our people. Um, who's down there? Majority is community 
activists and volunteers. At this time, we do not have much actual line of fire victims. And the reason why, I think, is the fact that they may become homeless in the next few months. So they don't want to choose to be homeless before they have to be homeless type of deal. You have very specific demands for Hawaii yes. Governor Josh Green and mm-hmm. Maui Mayor Richard Besson in terms Correct. of addressing housing. What are they? So our, our direct demand is there is an exemption called the Minotoya List. And these are short-term rentals that are operating unpermitted but legally under this exemption. There are roughly 2,500 in West Maui unpermitted that we should switch over. So under the emergency powers of the mayor and the governor, they should put their foot down and declare that these short-term rentals be switched over to house fire victims. And, you know, Governor Green and the mayor, they've been looking at various steps to um, rein that in to halt possibly all short-term rentals on Maui as Mm -hmm. soon as this month. If the governor says he can't find 3,000 housing units for survivors, mm-hmm. is that enough? For the governor to do a full-on moratorium, that will be enough for the time being. But something more will need to happen. We will need to regulate short-term rentals to get more housing back into our local pool. Because right now, the situation we're in, many have already moved off and are looking to move off island. And we simply can't have that. I want to ask you, Jordan, there's also this real kind of push and pull between the need to bring back tourists to Maui to support the Mm -hmm. economy, but then those tourists end up in these short-term rentals, I guess like Airbnbs, Mm -hmm. which is then denying housing to people who live there and need it. I wonder, you know, how you fall on that. So honestly, we do need to regulate the short-term rentals. We have Kanapali, we have Kapalua, and many other areas which are full-blown resort areas. And that's where we feel our tourists should be. We don't feel that our tourists should be in our residential areas as our neighbors, unfortunately. So tourists have been coming down to the beach. They've seen your protest. They're coming down to to talk Mm -hmm. to, to you and others. What are you telling them? What's your message? Simply just educating them. A lot of them come and they don't know what's going on or they know about the fire and don't know about other issues going on. So the tourist education has been a very beautiful thing because it shows that there are people who do care and do want to help and they do want to get plugged in instead of, you know, thinking they're just helping by coming on vacation. Jordan Ruidas is a grassroots organizer protesting for long-term housing for fire survivors on Maui. Jordan, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Aloha. Now, after we talked with Jordan Ruidas, Hawaii Governor Josh Green announced a plan that promises interim housing for more than 3,000 households. It comes with $500 million of federal, state and local dollars. There was no mention of the moratorium on short-term rentals that Ruidas and other activists have been calling for. Joining us now is Hawaii Governor Josh Green. Governor Green, welcome to Here and Now. Aloha. Thank you for having me. Governor Green, the situation seems pretty dire with thousands still stuck in hotels. Can you give us some more details about this new money, the new plan, and who exactly will get helped? Yes, absolutely. So uh, first, our hearts go out to everyone who has uh, been displaced and, of course, the lost loved ones we had from the fire. Uh, What Hawaii did was 12,000 people were displaced, 4,000 people found homes with uh, friends or family right away, and then 
7,996 of us and, and friends went into uh, hotels. So we did something that no one ever has done before, which is three quarters of our, our displaced folks ended up in a hotel within about 13 days. Now, however, uh, that the year has gone, we've been moving people very gradually. 25% of the people from peak have now moved into better situations, which is uh, a longer-term rental. What Jordan said was absolutely right, something that we have to do, which is convert short-term rentals to long-term rentals. We have 27,000 of those short-term rentals on Maui alone. And if just 10% of them transition to long-term rentals, which we're doing actively with that $500 million, then we'll have more than enough housing for these next 18 months to two years uh, to begin to build. There's a and lot can I more ask to you, sir, can, yeah. can I ask you how you're going to do that? Because obviously there's an economic incentive there for landlords to do short-term rentals rather than long-term. Will some of this money aim to, to address that? Yes, this money pays them uh, basically their fair market rate that they were getting for their short-term rentals. The problem with short-term rentals is they're 366% uh, of the base of regular rentals. So if you're regularly renting a house for 4000 a short-term rental next door is getting around 14000 And that imbalance, which is not just for Hawaii, it's across the country in the most appealing markets, just destroys the housing market, which is why we are taking action and, and aggressively. We did a couple things. The mayor was very smart with the council. They got rid of the property tax. They're giving a property tax exemption to people who participate in our transition to long-term rentals. That'll be a big benefit. And then I'm paying basically full boat for these next uh, 18 months to two years, along with FEMA. That's what that $500 million is. So that meaning, has already generated. Meaning, let me, meaning you'll I need pay to that 14000 a month versus the 4000 uh, Yes. Yeah, so the average is going to be between seven dollars and $11,000, depending on what they got the previous year. We will pay that. So we're keeping people totally whole. I did mention the moratorium, probably just um, didn't get picked up by the news, but the, uh, the moratorium that I've called for, which is probably the most aggressive position uh, in the country, is if I don't get these 3,000 units for our, our local families that Jordan was talking about, then I will, um, what we've called the nuclear hammer, people want drama, but really it's just I will do a short-term uh, moratorium consistent with our emergency declaration until we get those houses. So. It, it will hold up in court. I know that was a misconception that was reported. It'll hold up in court because we've done this before. We did it when there was a flood on Kauai in 2018. We did a short-term ban on, on the short-term rentals, and it held up. So I'm pushing as hard as I can. These are major moves, and what we really need to do is have essentially a three-year runway to convert a ton of short-term rentals in Hawaii into long-term rentals. And that's what and, the legislature do. you have a deadline, sir? Do you have a deadline for, for when you might, if you don't have enough of these short-term rentals converting to longer-term rentals where you will call a moratorium? Yes, uh, I do. March 1st is our projected date right now. We had 600 already sign up to switch over and another 1,000 in the queue. So we're rap rapidly going to get to 1,600. Now, as of Friday, there were 2,400 families, actually 2,370 households uh, to be more specific that were still uh, in need of long-term housing, that, that represented just under 6,000 people, 5,829 people. Those individuals will quickly get housed, plus 400 of those households can actually return to their homes, which are undamaged. So we should get there, but I will use the moratorium 
And I'll be be firm with that if we don't get enough housing for our local families. So we only have a few seconds left. I just want to ask you if there's anything in the plan for those who are trying to rebuild their houses and paying mortgages, as we heard on Ashes and Rubble. There are. There is an additional $450 million over and above this $500 million, which we have, which will begin the rebuild for many hundreds of units. We're already projecting, uh, well, it's, about 500 units from FEMA, and I will build 1,000 units if necessary, 960 actually. Okay. So we will continue we have, to move towards building, but we have to We have to everyone. leave it there. Hawaii Democratic Governor Josh Green, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Coming up, a certain former president once said, rarely is the question asked, is our children learning? Well, Bush barely had to contend with smartphones and social media. And since then, we've actually been asking that question a lot. Especially since test scores started falling off a cliff 10 years ago. When we return, Deepa digs into the data behind a deceptively simple question. Are phones making kids dumber? Find out after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Osea with skincare sets for Mother's Day in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. The Embedded podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity, tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism, immersive and intimate stories. I was stone-cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a question most of us have probably asked ourselves. Are phones making us dumber? Getting a concrete answer to that question has been difficult, but new data could help, especially when it comes to what phones are doing to kids. Researchers point to a steep slide in several measures of student well-being that began in 2012, right around the time when smartphones and social media started taking over the lives of so many teenagers. The Atlantic's Derek Thompson has been looking into the evidence and he joins us for more. Hi, Derek. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. So, Derek, you write that you didn't totally buy the argument that phones are affecting kids' performance in school until now. What changed your mind? Well, first, I wanted to be optimistic. And second, for a long time, I believed the story that over time, people were generally getting smarter. But there was a new PISA report that came out uh, in the last few months. That's the Program for International Student Assessment, which is really 
the gold standard when it comes to looking at student achievement, especially in math and reading and science. And it has pretty conclusive evidence that math scores and reading scores and science scores all peaked around the world, not just in the US, around the world, and especially across the OECD, so richer Western countries in particular, this, these scores peaked between 2009 and 2012. And I've done a lot of reporting about the fact that between 2009 and 2012, this is when smartphone penetration was screaming fat past 50% in these richer countries. And that really opened up the question of, wait, maybe there is some connection between smartphones, social okay. media, and declining test scores. So, so when you look at the graph that actually is posted in your article, there is this steep drop off, like a cliff, you mm. know, starting in 2012, um, and that is student achievement. It just go, it just tanks. But there's also COVID, which happened, you know, in 2020. How do you tease out whether it's COVID related potentially, or or if it's phone related learning loss? My answer would be that it's a tanking within a tanking. You already <laughs> saw student scores declining between 2012 and 2020. We all know what happened in 2020. The pandemic caused schools to be closed, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Just about every single country saw declines in student achievement between 2019 and 2022 in PISA. So, yes, learning loss is real, but also there Both is a them. real yep. longer-term decline in PISA scores. Okay. Well, I, I want to just ask you, though, because, you know, mental health impacts of screen time is well documented. You know, it's gutting to read that teens on screens feel worse about their lives. Is that in any of the piece of data? Yeah, it's very much in these in this data. I mean, you find evidence that uh, PISA has connected the share of classmates who are on their phones to the share of classmates who say they feel nervous or anxious. Uh, you see that um, students who spend more time staring at their phone, they do worse in school. They tend to distract other students around them. They also tend to feel worse about their life. All of this was uh, found by PISA and has been found by other international surveys. To me, I had long understood and believed this idea that phones were at the heart of what we see to be a rising crisis of teen anxiety. And here, I think what's disturbing is that it's not just teen anxiety that seems to be increasing. Phones also seem to be taking away from student achievement. And that's because mm. not only are they a weapon of mass comparison, you constantly see how beautiful and successful and lucky mm -hmm. everyone else is around you, they're also a weapon of mass distraction. I mean, how exciting is a phone compared to a BC calculus uh, class. Well, I took BC calculus. I wasn't very good at it, but I certainly didn't have this incredibly exciting device to constantly distract me from the hard lessons of calculus. And that gets to a bigger point, Derek, that most schools allow kids to have their phones with them when they are in school. And, and I'm wondering, you know, is there any movement to, to reel that in to stop that? Yeah, there absolutely is a movement. And I think this movement is nascent. I think it is an experiment. I'm not sure we know for sure if taking phones away from students in classrooms will suddenly reverse this trend. I suspect it might, though. And I think that the best way to think about this new experiment of taking phones away from kids in high schools is that we're already running a global experiment on our minds, and in particular in the minds of young people. We have discovered that by injecting classrooms with phones, we have seen a dramatic increase in this sort of negative relationship between device use mm. and life satisfaction and happiness and this decline in achievement. So I think we should run the opposite experiment. Yeah, it, it really is 
gutting. So I want to ask you any advice because because kids have so much pressure on them to have phones. They're asking for them at younger ages. Parents are giving in. There's pressure on parents too. I have to say we held out. My son's in eighth grade, doesn't mm. have a phone, but he feels the pressure. So do we. Any advice for holding out or maybe just limiting phone use? I would say don't think of this as a student-by-student student choice. Think of it as a school-by-school school choice. Because if you leave it up to parents, then you're going to have a situation where 8th graders and ninth graders and 10th graders are going to be clamoring to have their phones in classes where everyone else has their phone. Instead, leave it up to the schools to ban phones in classes entirely. All right, got it. Derek Thompson, staff writer at The Atlantic, joining us via Skype. Thank you, Derek. Thank you. Hey, not everything on your phone makes you dumber probably listening to this podcast on a phone and i think we're making you smarter at least i hope so all right that's it for us today here and now anytime comes from the team behind here and now from npr and wbur boston today's stories were produced by thomas danielian ashley Locke, and julia corcoran today's editors were todd munt Mikaela rodriguez peter o'dowd and kat welch technical direction from mike moschetto and patrick o'connor Mike Moschetto also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and Chris Bentley, who is me. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Betterment. The emotional build of a will-they-won't-they they love story is never chill, but your investing portfolio should be. Betterment is the investing app that lets you be totally chill about your finances. Their automated technology and tax-smart tools are easy to set up, so you can focus on navigating any will-they-won't-they they love stories that come your way. Betterment. Be invested and totally chill. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Support for NPR and the following message come from Edward Jones. What is rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. Edward Jones Financial Advisors are people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.